0: Hey guys welcome back to another edition of the detour podcast i'm your host dan jones and joined as always by 4 time national road champion from australia johnny tomorrow and the voice of cycling phil liggett now fellas it's obviously a very special edition of the detour because it's it's three years to the day of the passing of our great mate uh paul sherwin who uh yeah i mean what what can you say about the guy absolute legend and and phil uh Obviously, we we start with you, mate. It, it's obviously a time, a, a sad time, because everyone obviously wishes Paul was still here. But a, a time to reflect on on how important he was a, as a person and, and what sort of imprint he has left on the sport of cycling.
1: Absolutely, Dan. I mean, how long have we got? Two or three hours? Because as long uh, as you as long as you want, mate. <laughs> I love that. The television never tell me that. Um, I, I met Paul, obviously. As a journalist, because he was a pretty good amateur cyclist in Britain. He won all of our major one day races. And I was invited uh, to speak at his cycling club amateur demo, which was the Altingham Raiden Cycling Club. And uh, he was leaving to hopefully be a pro in France. And so I was there as guest speaker to wish him well. That was the first real known contact with Paul to speak about him and not report on him. He went there. Within a year, he turned pro for Fiat. And so by the end of 78, he was already a pro and had ridden his first Tour de France. And uh, during that next 10 years, and he rode seven tours, finished five, I got talking to him just as a friend because the big thing was that every day on the tour, it's not like it is now, every day on the tour, the riders rocked up like it was a local club event. You know, They just rode up on their bikes and they looked for the chuck wagon. Uh, they signed on no no paraphernalia and paul always got me half a slice of lemon for my breakfast off the chuck wagon that was only allowed to be visited by the riders in the tour and he always snicked a lemon for me uh, melon rather a grapefruit that's i'll get it right a grapefruit and which i had every morning off paul before he started every stage of the tour until the till the rules changed some years later that's my first memory then we built a friendship uh as time went on, and then of course, when I read in a newspaper in Britain, he was turning, he was leaving the international pro ranks and coming back to Britain, uh, I stopped him at the end of the stage of Paris Nice in, in on the on the uh, Promenade des Anglais. I said, "Hey, are you packing in, Paul?" And he said, uh, "Yeah, well, I'm not packing in." He said, "I'm just going to um, race two years in Britain, and then I'm finished." He said, "But I can't tell you who I'm signing for." So that's all right. I said, what happens if I ask you to work with me on television? And he thought for about two or three seconds, and he just said, yeah, I'll give it a go. I said, okay, in which case, whoever you sign for, have it the month of July in your contract if you don't ride a bike race, just in case I can work it with the ITV and get you on television with me. And uh, within a week, I had a phone call from a, an old friend, a guy called George Shaw, you may know him, John. And George said, listen, Phil, he said, I've got this strange request from Paul Sherwin. I said, what sort of request? He says, well, he he wants to uh, have a clause in the contract uh, that not to race in the month of July. I said, so it's you then? You're signing him? Because he wouldn't tell me. He said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, yeah, it is us. He said, yeah. He's going to ride for Rally Bananas, sponsored by the banana industry as well. I said, yeah. And I, I explained it. And he goes, that's fine. That's absolutely fine, he said. I said, look, George, we'll get a logo on him on the television. AB in vision. Uh, he said, no, it's fine. Got to think of his future. And that was how we got together. 33 years later came the tragic news, which almost to the minute on this day, as I speak to you, was the day I had a phone call from Paul's wife, Catherine, to say, Phil, uh, Paul has passed away this morning. I not know what to say.
0: It's it, Going back to your story, I mean, Paul's obviously pretty smart networker because those melons that he gave you have just came back in spades because you put the neck out. And, and John, that's something that you do really well is you got to know the right bread to butter. <laughs> uh,
2: exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, it is a tough time. It's funny. It was funny. It was only a couple of days ago talking to a good mate of ours, uh, uh, Phil, uh, in Cogs, Peter Cogoy Yes. And it was him, he said to me, oh, Johnny, you know that uh, uh, Thursday, Thursday is three years to the day. When Paul left us. I said, oh, really? And that's when I, I mentioned to, to Dan and, and, and text you as well. Because I thought, yeah, it did, it's hard to believe that it's three years. Um, uh, but, yeah, look, I go back nearly as far. I, I can remember... I remember, not well, it, in it, it, it 78. Anyway, go on, I'm just going to say there, well, the There's, a, vi-
0: there's a video that you wanted me to queue up and that was when oh. we asked Paul and Phil their first memories of Iffy. And this was Paul's <laughs> <laughs> recollection of the first time
3: he met you, John, all right? Let's have a look. I remember my, my make, big memory of Iffy is um, a race in Belgium, at Kermis, and he'd actually crossed the line in first place, but the photo finish had been moved. Give the advantage to a, a Belgian. I was actually a Dutch guy, Toine Van Der Bunde. He finished second. I met him in the pub afterwards, still in his racing kit. I've been chased. I got myself all smarted up. He was still in a racing kit, That's nice John. Having a beer,
1: with a cigarette, yeah. and a guy just finished second, about 15 places in front of me. He could have been tough guy. The biggest resulted cyclist in the world of Australian cycling because he had the talent, uh, but he does like a, a beer or two. <laughs>
0: Uh so what are your oh. memories of that, John? <laughs> Is that a true story or what?
2: Yeah, it was not, uh, 1978, actually. And so uh, Paul had just turned pro and he'd actually ridden the Tour de France he'd just before that the Tour race. Tour France just before that No, he just said yeah. Echo. Echo yeah. there, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I do remember quite well it was Nick an Lou and Troy uh, van der they didn't move the the, the photo finish. Actually, it malfunctioned. And it turned out I was flicked by my own DS who was from that town, Julian Stevens, who was trying to get Van de Bunda into our team for the following year. But anyway, that's another story. That's just another iffy story. But I do remember it well. Um, and I went to the races sometimes with Paul because we lived not far from each other in, in, in Ghent, in Belgium. He only took me a couple of times, but then because I would get stuck in the pub and he wasn't into that, uh, he soon found reasons not to pick me up. But anyway, that was fine. I could live with that. But, yeah, look, a sensational guy and a photographic memory. The fact that he remembered all of that, like 30-odd mm. years later, mm. uh, is quite staggering. In all of the things that he did in cycling, uh, they remember that. But he signed with fit, which – had been the biggest team in the world the year before when Eddie Merckx was riding for them. Then Eddie had moved on. The team kept going that that, that next year. So, um, yeah, sensational guy. Well,
1: Channel 7 Dan?
0: did a, did a tribute. Oh, uh, you're all right, Phil. No, I was just going to say, if
1: you're going to tell tales out of school, John, um I remember with Paul, you're right about his memory. He doesn't forget much at all. He's a very intelligent man, I was, and... Uh, I remember we were climbing, not physically, we were commentating on the race up in the which is a beautiful part of the Alps, and we were climbing the Col de Colombière, and he was describing the descent down to the finish in the town of Bournon. and he says, we used to have our winter training sessions here when I was with Lara Ducino. He said, there's a fantastic bakery just round the corner. He said, um, I used to go out with the girl there, so we'd better not go in because she had a big dad. And I think it's just five past the day. So he just remembers those sort of things. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, Uh, Channel 7 did a tribute uh, for Paul a couple of years ago when they were doing their uh, tour down under coverage. Uh, So I've been able to grab that off YouTube. So let's have a look.
2: There's
1: only one thing I don't like about him. That? He keeps telling me I'm
4: stupid. But oh, it's never like <laughs> I think, like a lot of people, it was just an uh, incredible shock when, when the news broke of, of Paul's passing. He is the colour, the energy and the light that life needs.
1: Yes, yeah, actually, uh, he's, uh, done he's, done not done done. he's not asleep.
3: He's pining for the fields. No, 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 no. that parrot's no. dead.
5: Oh, it could be a bit of a bit of a larrikin as well, uh, behind the scenes, especially off the camera, and just always had a smile, uh, which I think everyone knows and saw, and he was just a bloody good bloke.
1: We were Simon twins. We were joined at the hip, and we did everything together. And funnily enough, after the early years, we never talked cycling in private.
3: Well everyone, if you just have a quick glance behind me, we're finally breaking down the camp at the end of the second annual tour of Karamoja.
1: Paul loved Africa and he spoke fluent Swahili. There's now a centre of excellence for the Karamoja tribe, been developed in Kampala, based on Paul's name. Paul got them bikes, crate loads of bikes in a partnership with a, a friend from Canada. All the Karamoja people rode to his funeral on those bikes and it was very, very touching. They were heartbroken because his death, here today, gone in the morning, it was too, too quick.
3: A lot of you might have wondered, what does Paul Sherwin do when the Tour de France and the Tour of Spain are finished?
5: The thing that stood well, out with Paul the was uh, the respect that he had of the athletes. So
3: medalist in London on the track, ladies and gentlemen,
5: Aaron Thomas. He'd been through uh, the ups and downs of an athlete's life. say. The respect that he had was significant and really important to presenting
3: the sport of cycling. My memory
5: serves me correctly, the first time the Tour de France finished up here was 1995, and it was Le 14 juillet Bastille Day. People fall asleep, especially Australians, with their voices at night, you know, on the couch. So they've become part of their household, part of their family, and I think subconsciously, both their voices just Connect with Australians, whether they like it or not, because that's what they listen to at night. To
3: beat him, Phil, is by
1: starting the sprint ahead of him. Unbelievable! Mark Cavendish then gets his fourth stage win and his eighth in
3: history. So I got to know Paul when I was a rider. Paul was always someone who would make time to come and chat if he possibly could to catch up, and which is really hard to do for someone who's working behind the scenes in a, in a commentary booth. Post-career, then, I've been fortunate enough to sit next to Paul in commentary and learn.
4: We saw that's what got him into...
3: Especially at Tour Down Under, because that's the race I worked together with uh, Phil and Paul.
4: I have just got a great snap. I, I asked them, you know, I was like, a bit of a fangirl moment. I'm like, oh, Phil and Paul, do you mind if I have a photo with the two of you last year, because I was working with them. And they gave me a kiss on the cheek in the photo, which was really nice, so I had my podium boys. That's a good memory.
3: We will miss him, and Paul will remain in everyone's memory. Well Paul's been such an important part of the tour and under for so many years. The part he's played has helped
1: make the race what it is today. The outpouring of love and affection since he passed well, I was in South Africa and in a very bad communication area, driving a kilometer to the top of a hill, surrounded by giraffe or zebra, holding my computer out the window and trying to do a television or radio interview. It was completely crazy. It was surreal. I could never accept Paul was no longer going to be seen by me, and uh, still can't. Yeah,
0: it's fantastic uh, tribute there, obviously to Paul uh, done by Channel Seven a couple of years ago now. And we also caught up with Stuart O'Grady uh, earlier today. Now, John, you were meant to be doing the interview, but There's there was an electrical storm and more iffy internet problems. So uh we got hit by a storm.
2: This. You can't blame me for that one, mate.
0: You can't. All right. so we got all hit right. by an electrical
2: storm. Cut out okay. all of the... Uh, okay, you get
0: off. a pass card, you get a pass card, but <laughs> I've about to cover it the last bit after doing the painting. So here's the interview we did with uh, Stuart O'Grady about his memories of uh, Paul Sherwin. Well, Stuart, if he was going to be doing these insights, but uh his internet's gone. So uh, I've just finished painting, mate. <laughs> Don't mind the attire. But uh obviously we're, we're talking Look, about mate. Paul Sherwin. Um, three years, sadly, since his passing, and uh, what an amazing character! But you know, what sort of uh, effect did he have on you, particularly Sandos Tour Down Under and the strong links there? But you know, you would have had a lot to do with him over the the course of your career.
5: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent, Dan. I mean, the, I'll never ever forget actually the first time I'd ever actually met uh, Phil and Paul. It was at Perrie Bay on the start line um, just before my first Peru Bay, probably back in '95, I guess um and you know at the time there, there was literally no other english-speaking people around so to come across uh you know them at the start line and actually speak a bit of english i was really blown away and you know the fact that they knew who i was and you kind of had this little brief chat and you know i was one of the one of the anglo-saxons that had made it you know um had made the journey it, it jumped into the deep end and and you know and followed in the steps of many of the guys that. Had ridden that path before us you know including paul i mean himself and phil anderson and all those guys were were a part of ACBB um back in the the early french days and continued on their merry journey into the professional world and so you kind of you know had a bit of kudos coming from those guys even though they're commentators um you know they they were fantastic bike riders in their own um you know in their own parts so um you know paul and phil from day one from my professional career um, they weren't commentators. They were someone that I kind of connected with, uh, got to speak a bit of English with. And, and, and you know, behind the scenes when we put the cameras down, it was, you know, catching up, how's your family, how you are doing. You know, there was almost a little bit of care involved. And, you know, this certainly didn't become father figures, but they were there as a, as a friend and and someone to kind of lean on in, in when you're stressed out about starting your first Bay or your second Bay or your 15th Bay um and obviously once you start the tour de france you know they be, they become part of your life um especially since i've retired and, and have been watching the tours from the comfort of my couch um you know those guys they're, they're, they're in your heads all night you're listening to them you're falling asleep to their voices um subconsciously they, they really make their way into your mind and become part of your life so uh obviously Phil and Paul um, were inseparable, uh, and, and, you know, they had a special place, the two Tour Down Under, and many other races around them as well, but the two are Down Under, they, they really enjoyed their time down here. They were very well looked after. They, you know, Paul had his favourite pair of R.M. Williams and uh, used to like his pastries at our bakeries and, and the odd drop of a red wine. But, you know, they were just a piece of cycling history and the knowledge that, obviously, they both had, the way they they came across with it, you know, it was never too in your face. It was always friendly and, and, um, you know, whenever you needed a bit of a laugh or, a, you know, get out of a serious situation, Paul was there. And, uh, yeah, he's sadly missed, that's for sure.
0: Was one of the biggest things, I mean, Phil and Paul, obviously, superstar duo, but just how genuine these guys are off camera.
5: Yeah, I think, I think that's, you've nailed it. I think that's it. They're, they're just two genuine, great people. Um, fantastic blokes gentlemen but also really funny and behind the scenes was, was the funniest parts you know when the when the cameras were, were put on pause or you know you went away from a from an outbreak or something you know they just had the craziest one-liners they were like a, a comedy couple um you know it's just it was fantastic fantastic to be around and, and they just livened up every moment uh, wherever they went you know this of the stories I've heard from the moment they came down uh, to for a breakfast where, you know, Phil had Paul running around getting his coffees and Paul was Phil's driver. Uh, I'm not sure if everybody knew that, but, you know, Phil never, I don't think he can drive. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Paul drove him everywhere and chaperoned him around and looked after him. And, yeah, it was just a—it was one of those those duos that come along every now and then and it's going to be extremely difficult to replicate, I think.
0: And last one, mate, how good is it? particularly when you do look back on your career, that their commentary is tattooed to iconic moments that you link to.
5: Yeah, it does make it a little bit more special, I guess. It's, it, it, it's fantastic, um, you know, when, not that I do hear it very often, but, you know, the moment I tacked in Roubaix, for example, you hear them kind of freaking out, where, where did he come from? You know, out of the dust. And I guess you don't really appreciate those those moments in time, um, until you really do look back and get to appreciate him even more. And, uh, yeah, he sadly missed, um, you know, he was a close friend and uh, someone that certainly, um, you know, I, I looked up to and I just loved being around. Um, there it's always, uh, it's pretty hard when they go at such an early age.
0: Yeah, there was an interview we did earlier with Shiro Grady. Um, Phil, obviously three, three years has gone pretty quick, but has it really cemented how much... Paul meant to everyone, and just his legacy.
1: Oh. Look, the, when I went to my first tour without Paul, first of all, Bob Roll had the invidious, invidious job of sitting alongside me. Uh, my one fear was I'm going to call Bob Paul at some stage of the broadcast, but I never did. Uh, which uh, Bob and Paul were also great friends, and Bob's a crazy guy but Paul got on so well with Bob. His opinion was awful about Bob, but when he's with Bob, he laughed his way. That's the way it is. Um, It's 33 years of memories now. Um, It cannot, as as Stu alluded to that, it it cannot be replaced. It's a period of of my life uh, and everybody's life, I think, which was fantastic. Um, We didn't actually do any rehearsals for our show. We didn't walk around together uh, intentionally nothing was ever planned we would walk out of our separate bedrooms opposite each other in a hotel at the same time without ever arranging it that's what it was like um or paul at 6 30 every morning if he he always gets up immediately and makes his kenyan coffee in the room and he just uh, bang on the door your coffee's outside and walk back to his room and I'd open the doors, like Covid times now in a hotel here. The, coffee, <laughs> the coffee's outside the door and pull it in and wear your mask. And so then we, we turn up together at the same time at breakfast. And Stu is right, uh, Paul loved to drive. In fact, he was, a, he was a terrible, terrible, terrible passenger. Because in the early days, uh, I used to get him to, to read my copy over when I actually was the driver but um i didn't drive very much on the tour because paul a was a terrific driver and b he didn't like being a passenger in fact he felt quite sick if he tried to read a newspaper uh, so it was great for me i used to read all the newspapers but i never went to sleep because i would not allow paul to drive maybe seven hours uh, and likely nod off so i hated his music though when we got blown up in 1992, by the bass separatists in a little village outside of San Sebastian, it was the best moment of my life. His 50 CDs got burnt out in the car. It was brilliant. <laughs> All that music gone. He was heartbroken.
2: <laughs> what are you going to say, "Ify"? Well, you can't just sort of say when you got blown up and just move blown on. We've got to go back. On. To back. <laughs> there goes that echo again. What happened when you got
1: blown up? Well, we obviously, the the, the Etta, as it was known, uh, was very active at the time. They hated the French, and they decided to have a few goes at the Tour de France, which was starting in Spain in 92, which was also Olympic year in Spain. And I, um, we arrived, but we went on a boat trip. It was a 24-hour boat trip from the UK to saint just down the road from the start line. So I had a brand-new Citroën, which is a French car. but They have British plates on it. So the French thought I was French. And when we were parked the car that night in a little tiny square, um, I just got in bed and it was midnight. Remember to perfection. I just got in bed and uh, a cameraman knocked on my door and said, Phil, Phil, your car's on fire. Get out now. I said, yeah, right. Because they're always playing pranks. I said, yeah, right. Okay. I'll see you in the morning. No, no, no. He said, well, see, your car's on fire. Uh, and it's rolling into the hotel front lobby. And he did. And, um, they put an incendiary device underneath my car. Unfortunately, it took out six Spanish cars as well, which I felt really sorry for this 18-year-old girl. A 2CV had burned to a cinder, and I doubt very much she was going to get the money back. But the the, the actual Basque people were simply so nice. We know who's done this, they said. And that all night, they, they gave coffee out. We had to uh, rearrange our whole show uh, because I had no clothes left. They were in the car. And... Um, I remember Mick Jagger called me uh, because Mick has a house in Blois uh, just up the road. And I knew Mick because my mate was his road manager. And Mick offered me his wardrobe. And I said, Mick, we're all (laughs) the best will in the world, mate. I don't think your wardrobe is going to make me look good on Channel four. You could have
0: worn leather chaps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It it was was very unfortunate. We weren't the only car, of course, over the period. They got a few cars organization was very embarrassed they loaned us a a car french uh, but we dodged the bullets after that and we uh citroen were absolutely unbelievable this was a brand new vehicle less than a thousand kilometers on the clock Uh, and when i reported it to them they simply said is anybody dead i said no they said There'll be a new car when you get to Bordeaux. That was the nearest point in France after after Spain, and there was, we, and they gave us a new car to drive around and back to England. Wow. So hats off to Citroen. It was a very embarrassing situation all round, and the other thing was, in the trunk of the car was my Olympic accreditation for at the end of the games we were transferring to the Olympic games in Barcelona, and um, it burned up. And as you may know, trying to get an Olympic accreditation takes two years of vetting, etc. This was burned gone. Uh, and I just told the organization of uh, of my association, which is a journalist union, uh, French one, within 48 hours they came up to me and said, Phil, when you get to Barcelona, your new Olympic badge is waiting for you. Now that's speed for you. They just wanted this problem out of the way and fast. And I went to the games, of course. Yeah, the but Paul was pretty pretty useful. He, he, some of his clothes survived, so he was okay for a little while. But um, <laughs> he was heartbroken. His CDs had gone. Oh, all, what
0: was his favorite, what was his favorite <laughs> oh, band? Oh, God, it's, it's all band. horrible
1: music, Dan. I don't know. It's, 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 it's not all horrible music, but he did like his African music, which I do too, because yeah. it's full of rhythm. Um, and i was sorry they disappeared, but he's, a lot of his music... He knows all... He used to talk to everybody about groups and uh, he knew all these players players and said, yeah. cool. And still don't, by the way. Probably just yeah.
0: Well, we've got a very uh, special uh, guest. Coming guess, uh, up, uh, John.
2: Yes.
1: Yes. Do you want
0: to go uh-huh. to a break and what? bring the guest in? Yeah, well, I do, yeah, this yeah, better yeah, be a good question, question, mate.
2: Well, it was just what, what um Stewie touched on before mm. was so right. He said they were just fantastic to be around. So whenever you know I was lucky enough to be around. Um, mm. Phil and Paul, and I've been mates with you for, for a lot of years, but when you two were together, you were a little bit like a comedy duo. I mean, yeah. you're just one-liners, fun and games oh, and all attention. the time. It was – but it was just – it rolled off. It was mm. – you obviously yeah. had a special, special relationship because there was nothing manufactured. It's not like they were the couple. There's their TV and then they were together for the whole tour of to France.
1: Yes. So we, we had, had to dinner
2: together. You did everything together, had breakfast together, you you were really
1: close, yeah. mate. And, and you never we, had a we fight. Um,
0: you never had a fight. I used to have a fight daily with John when I would be at the
1: tour. <laughs> yeah, but you see, you're Australian. We're we're just passive <laughs> English people. But having said that, what Stewie said is absolutely right, uh, and I can tell. And I hope Stewie watches the podcast afterwards. Um, I can tell you, Paul thought the world of Stewie, and he he was he was knocked out by the man's fighting spirit. These two characters, as you know, he's a really nice guy. We've just seen. Uh, but he's a Dr. Jekyll when he gets on that bike and he rides. He he rides to win. And when he got caught 200 metres from the line in the, in the stage of the Tour de France, we were in tears. I mean, this is ridiculous. He'd been in the lead for over 200 kilometres and he got caught and he could touch the line and they passed him. I think um, I, I think Paul, Paul himself has always uh, been an interesting character. We don't rehearse, as I say, but I remember walking down to a full house in a theatre in Seattle in Washington, D.C., uh, in Washington State, rather, in, um oh, about 10 years ago, maybe. And as we're walking down to a loud applause and a standing ovation, we hadn't even started yet. There was about 800 people in the theatre. And Paul says, what are we going to talk about then? As we're walking down to the stage, <laughs> what are we going to... T- I just said, no bloody idea, mate, but when we get up there, we'll kill him. And once you give Paul a seed, you can sit back and listen. That's the way it is. Uh, All awesome. right.
0: Uh, we're going to have a quick drink break, and on the other side, we're going to talk to another commentator superstar, Rob Hatch. Uh, you'd all know him from Eurosport. Uh, he's managed who speak four languages fluently, so that's about uh, four more than us, John. Uh, so yeah, quick drink break. We'll have Rob Hatch on the other side of the break.
4: Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. <clears throat> it's a bike. 374 people are looking at. This guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is. People that are looking for a bike, or just a piece of it. Amateurs, semi-amateurs, and pro-amateurs. This guy wants this bike, but with this crank, and these bars. This could be the perfect match, but not this one. This girl has a bike to sell, and thousands of people might purchase it. Eyes on bikes help grow small businesses. His, hers, yours, and the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving. We are the world's number one bike marketplace, with over 500,000 products and 900 brands, where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns, and rides. Life is like a
1: two-way street. It's about consideration and mutual respect. Roads are much the same. However you get around, walk, ride or drive, if we share our roads, we can all be safer. The Amy Gillett Foundation is Australia's peak cycling safety charity. Our mission is for safe cycling in Australia. Our vision is for zero cyclist deaths. Over the last year we've seen an enormous increase in people taking up cycling, whether it be for recreation, with the family, commuting or even to start your own cycling career. We need to do more to make it safer for every cyclist. Twenty cyclists every day are hospitalised and one cyclist is killed every ten days on Australian roads. the next time you jump on your bike or hop in your car, remember to practice the four C's. Be courteous, calm, considerate and conscientious. Every cyclist's death is preventable and we all deserve to get home safely. Please donate to help the Amy Gillett Foundation make the road safer for you and for me.
0: Thanks again to Bike Exchange and the Amy Gillett Foundation. As we said before, we're joined by Rob Hatch, uh, commentator extraordinaire from Eurosport. He's been with him since 2007. He's also commentated on the Olympics and Winter Olympics and he's done everything. Rob, thanks for joining us on the detour, mate. Good morning, good
3: afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is for you. I mean,
1: I'm <laughs> <laughs> eight o'clock. I can yeah, like, tell you, we're looking for
2: you, <laughs> We have got
0: you up early, mate. Now, um, we've obviously been talking about uh, Paul Sherwin a lot on the, the show today, given it's three years to the day uh, since he's passing. What what sort of an influence is Paul Sherwood on, on to your fellow self?
3: Well, Paul and Phil will always be the voices of cycling, won't they? I mean, a lot of people who, certainly my age, years before, years after, yeah, because yeah, all of those you. moments that we've seen since the, the 80s, they'll always be there, won't they? They'll be replayed and archive and they'll always be the voices of cycling. And obviously all of us here were in a very privileged position to to meet Paul in Phil's case live his life next to him and, and all the joy that he brought to everything and and I'll just always remember the, you know, the first few years that I was sort of France and, and other races uh, just stepping down the commentary box and you'd always hear Paul's voice you'd always hear it from a country mile off and he'd just be this happy presence and everybody like a magnet, you know, just around him chatting and sharing stories and and that, that was the nice thing. It wasn't necessarily about the cycling. It was just about the, the place. And I think I've been listening to some lovely stories this morning about his love for Africa and everything. But, yeah, um, a giant of a person and taken too soon. Is it is it
0: refreshing when you see guys that are superstars, and we're talking about this with Stewie, that are just so humble, you know, outside of, of their job? Because, like, I had a guy, you know, uh, installing a TV here today, And he did an extra job for me. I thought, I'll I'll flick him a DVD. And he said, oh, what's this? And I said, oh, you know, it's an all for one. And he said, oh, do you know Phil Liggett? I said, yeah, yeah, I know Phil. And he goes, oh, mate, he's like my idol. I said, well, you know what they say, mate? You should never meet your heroes. (laughs) But but in this case, you should because, fair, they're bloody
3: just as good. Yeah, I mean, that's the nice thing about cycling, isn't it, really? generally. Um, yeah. and as you said at the beginning, yeah. I've worked in a few different sports and and I love them all. I grew up watching the cricket. I idolised the Australian cricket commentators. They were my heroes when I was a kid, really. Um, watching football, did a bit of work in football and it's true, not everybody's as nice, really. Not everybody is as nice as in cycling. And yeah, you get the odd character, let's say, but it's just... It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to meet people like Phil and have the odd opportunity of working with him and obviously Paul. And and it is very refreshing to know that they're just simply nice people who enjoy life, want to have a good time, and want to sort of share that joy with other people, whether it's on air or off air.
0: Phil, is is there a big community amongst cycling commentators? I mean, have you guys started your own WhatsApp group or something? I I feel like (laughs) if you haven't, you need to get one
1: started. Well, when I started, there were none, but uh, they gradually got more of them, more and more. Nice to meet you again, Rob. And um, nice to see you, Rob. Yeah, we've had uh, we've watched the what's the, uh, the the commentating peloton gradually grow. Now uh, there's quite a few around the world now. Uh, I think they all work for Eurosport, but there's quite a few. And it's um, I'm just having some more coffee once this is here. Uh, <laughs> We, we, we remain a close pact, as indeed in general do all of the commentators around the world. All our, we call them all our friends, rather than colleagues that commentate. If a writer comes on screen, we just look at his nationality if we don't know him. Rob will know him, but I may not. And I'll nip down the, the commentary box and I'll, uh, I'll ask whichever nation he comes from and I'll get a full story. And they'll do the same for me. Uh, in the early days of Mark Cavendish, they used to come and ask me, who is this man Cavendish and we'd explain he was going to be a good rider, might win a stage of the Tour de France occasionally. So I think, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a community. Mm-hmm. And they, they're they all doing the same job. You know, you, you live as a commentator on what you say, and if you make an absolute prat of yourself, that's your last job. And that's why Paul and I used to love live television, because we always said, and this is his words, just remember, if you fuck up now, you haven't got a job tomorrow. <laughs> and you say, yeah, that's absolutely right, Paul. So just remember, it's not to say anything like rubbish. Uh, but we, <laughs> as I said earlier, we we never, ever wrote a script. When I used to work with CBS in the 80s, a little girl used to come across me just for a go on end. They said, Mr. Liggett, can you just tell us what your opening lines will be? I said, I've no idea, love. It'll probably be something like Hello. Um, <laughs> and then I would hear in my earpiece the producer... Uh, say just leave him alone. He's a Brit. It'll be okay when he starts talking, and that's how my life has always been throughout the world. And, uh, you had me at hello,
2: Phil. You had me at hello,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Rob. Rob, uh, great to uh, to speak with you. I have heard your dulcet uh, tones, and you mentioned at the start about Phil and Paul being the voice of cycling, but you are very much jumping on their on their coattails there.
1: Another and- one. Another <laughs> one.
2: Uh, and two of your co-commentators I know very well, of course, Sean Kelly, I, I raced with Sean. Yeah. But you were just talking then, uh, Dan, I think you mentioned about the, the commentators getting together. When I first knew Paul back in, when I was racing in 78, there wasn't 10 English-speaking uh, riders in the whole peloton. No. So all the English-speaking guys, uh, speaking guys would get together. And Sean was one of those. Sean Kelly was just starting out on his brilliant career. Uh, but I remember trying to keep away from Sean because during a race, I couldn't understand him. He was hard enough to understand any time, but during a race, that mixture of Irish, French, never. But uh, the other, your other co-commentator, Maggie, Magnus Backstead, who almost sounds like an Aussie uh, for a while there. He has he an so Aussie close. twang, doesn't
3: he? he? has an Aussie twang. Uh, yeah, like, he has yeah. an Aussie
2: twang. And the, he, he used to come out in the <laughs> early days and ride in the, the bike series that I was putting on, you know, the Bay Crits. And uh-huh. that's where he met his lovely <laughs> wife.
1: Thirty-six course, minutes I got,
2: in, I got the bike in, Of course, of yeah, good,
1: <laughs> absolutely,
2: exactly. Yeah. But but um, he met his lovely wife uh, the during the bike, bay- and uh, she was riding the Welsh team. So there you go. So uh, yeah. did you have a obviously. question for Rob, John, or do you just want to
0: pump the bike? <laughs> well, I,
2: well I, the- I, but, but that, but I was <laughs> just going to say, what's it like working with the two leaders like that? With, with uh, um, uh, Sean Kelly and Magnus. <clears throat>
3: Well, it goes back to what I was just saying then about people in cycling generally being quite nice, certainly that generation anyway, because like you say, there were, certainly in Sean's case, there weren't even 10 English-speaking, English-speaking white riders English. out there in the, in the international peloton at that level. So I think to be, to make friends, it had to be humble and nice. Thankfully, as character is is like that anyway. I mean, you, you couldn't ask to meet a nicer gentleman in this world than Sean Kelly. Uh, always calm, courteous and you know he'll go to france and he'll speak his french He speak flemish he sort of there isn't anybody he isn't friends with really even even old enemies on the bike and magnus as well magnus came along from from scandinavia a later time but again there weren't too many people who spoke english in the peloton you know even less that spoke swedish so he had to to get around and make his friends as well and and that carried through they're just very genuinely very very friendly people and, and, and it's lovely to know that you know you don't have to sort of look up in awe at these people and you can you can you can do a proper job with them and ask them questions. They they know you'll ask you ask them some pretty what might seem to them simple questions because we always have to remember that we're doing it for the viewer, not the, the ex bike riders or the, the pure fans. We've got to be inclusive, haven't we, and get everybody involved. And and they understand that and I think once they've understood broadcasting and who the audience is that that sort of nice personality comes through, doesn't it?
0: Now, one thing that fascinates about uh, your story, Rob, is you've got a posh voice that you use for commentary. I, I yes. read. How did that come yes. about? And what tips can you pass on to John how to polish up <laughs> his voice and, and add a bit more poshness to it?
3: Well, basically, I come from a region of England originally that, is, uh, that has a really strong accent. I'm probably talking in some horrible hybrid now, actually, because there's a camera yeah, in front fun. Of uh, and a microphone um, as long as it's understood that's fine but yeah we've got a, we've got i mean i'm from a region called lancashire and we've got a really really thick broad strong accent which is i always think it's lovely if you're talking to your mates or you know even if you're a guest on a tv or radio show but i thought if i've going to if i want to com- communicate with the entire world i can't talk in an and twang can i it's more than the twang it's it's it's, it's very very strong I think I'm fading back into it there you go then you can hear it a bit and uh, <laughs> that's good. imagine imagine David Lloyd on the cricket that, that's um, <laughs> and but if I'm going to be talking to the entire world and a lot of people that we broadcast to certainly on Eurosport or if I've worked with the BBC and people like that as well English isn't their first language so I think it's really important in the English language more than the Lewis, that we try and communicate clearly and and yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think I'd, I'd be able to talk like I was living in Buckingham Palace or anything like that. But I can't polish it up that much. But um, just just try and be a little clearer and move it down the M6, which is like the famous motorway we've got in, in England. Just move it a bit, a bit further south, really, and a bit more neutral. That's, that's the idea anyway. And and again, it's, it's just something that happened when when I had a microphone placed in front of me for the first time. And luckily somebody liked that voice. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. <laughs>
0: Now, Phil, one thing I like that Eurosport do, they, they commentate cycling a bit like cricket. You know, there's a team of guys. So there might be like lots of two that will come on at different times. I mean, is that something that you think that format like works really well? Because it's not a traditional format. I mean, you, you spend seven hours in a commentary booth. How good would it be if someone gave you a two hour chop out throughout those long stages?
1: Well, it does happen. Don't forget that Eurosport, they sort of started the end-to-end coverage of uh, televised cycling. And it's a long time to tell the same stories. And uh, I don't agree with end-to-end coverage of cycling, by the way. I think it gives the wrong image of a bike race. But on the other hand, the first hour is usually pretty good. Then we all have a rest in between. I go and do the garden, come back for the last 40K. But I think it's a great idea to change the voice because that brings the viewer back into it again. And, and I'm all for it. Um, I've, I've done it, uh, funnily enough, uh, th- this August past. I did uh, a new triathlon race in Slovakia. And uh, it was the richest race ever held at $1.5 million in prize money. Best 36 triathletes in the world over the half Ironman distance. We had six commentators. And mm. I, I get restless because I can't go off and walk away because the, the racing uh, over half Ironman. Uh, and, and it was 12 heats of three from each of the representing teams. Uh, it went on all day. And Eurosport took it, by the way, as well. And, but I had to just sit, I don't know whether you do this, Rob, but I just had to sit behind the commentators and still do the same job listening because mm. you don't know what's happened while you've been away. And, and there's a lot of action in triathlons. Uh, somebody will yeah. kick somebody in the face in the swim. You'll never <laughs> talk about it later. Uh, or they'll fall off the bike, as they did. Um, and you've got to know it's happened when you back reference it, so you've got to stay and watch it, even if you're not working. But um, they, I thought it Six be a, honest, to be
3: honest. Yeah, it presents it a particular challenge as well as being advantageous. Obviously, as the as the viewer, as the listener, whoever it is, I think you want different voices as much as we might be talking about. You know, I think we all have to have very. I mean, I'm maybe a bit bit old-fashioned. I think that commentators' voices should be good voices. Maybe that's why I try to work on my
1: own. Because I think that it, you know, no, no, no
3: matter no matter what's coming out of it, um, it has to be listenable, doesn't it? It has to capture the event uh, the
1: attention of somebody. I'm so I think that that is, is pretty important. Right. No, no, I, no, I hear,
2: I, I hear that it was more competitive in the uh, media booth at that triathlon. than It was
1: in the bike race or in the triathlon. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I said, not really, but there were two anchors. I was, a, was the senior anchor. And then you get moved over for the other anchor who was Canadian and knew his stuff inside out better than me. Uh, but I'm only anchoring the experts I had all the best triathletes in the world set alongside me in turns, and, uh, and they could do this real story of the event. But, um, sometimes they're also training new commentators in effect. The pundits were new to the calling the triathlon and they're not watching the monitors. And and believe it or not, we had twelve monitors because there were so many heats. There was it was just, it was a brand new format, taking like the rider Golf situation where you've got uh, fours on greens all over the place or pairs, whatever. And we had three three to athletes up against each other, and the cameras going everywhere. And the big mistake was they didn't know tell us where we're gone Sometimes you get on golf, uh par three, hole number two, or whatever. And uh, and we we just went to a guy in the swim and a girl in the swim. Seconds later, we're somewhere down the road with another heat. It got very complicated, and while the change of commentators that fast, um, I don't think it worked. But uh, I think it, there will be changes next year. But I did enjoy it, though.
3: Yeah,
1: um, how yeah, hard as a right, isn't it?
3: Sorry, mate. It's, it's difficult as a as a commentator. I think not to not to be in control of the broadcast for all that time. I think you realise. Deep down, that it's better for the viewer and the listener because they don't want to sim- listen to the same bloody voice all day, do they? Uh, no, no matter how good it no. might be, I think it's much, much better for the viewer. No. But as the commentator, you you want to make sure that you don't repeat what somebody else has said. Maybe somebody's not getting something that you were getting in your head, and you. I'd love to be saying that right now, and it can be frustrating. But but yeah, all, all yeah. in all, I think it's much better for the viewer that we have a little bit of
1: rotation in there. No, I agree but, with you, Rob.
3: I was going to ask you, Rob,
1: how
0: hard is it to get that chemistry where it's just fluid? You know, you're the lead commentator and the special comments guy, is that something that naturally develops over time or do you have some sort of system where you've got the elbow, you know, pokes or <laughs> you know, how does it
2: work?
3: It's different with every pairing, I think. Um, and I, I go back to, to the start of the show that I was listening to, by the way, when I, when I got up this morning. And just to chat about how good friends Phil and Paul were. You know, they basically talked about everything apart from cycling when they were off air. <laughs> and, and there are very few people you can have that good a relationship with. I think if you do have a, that sort of relationship off air, it does come across on air. Um, you know, there are little things and, and you know, the little elbow uh, barges and things like that, touching on the shoulder or hand up, whatever, you know, looks across. Because obviously you've got to be looking at the screen a lot of the time, although I, I do try to look across at the other commentator if I can. This is all pre-COVID, of course, um, because we're never in the same room anymore. But uh, yeah. I do try and look at the other commentator if I can, because I think that, you know, it, it just gives you, it gives that natural sort of idea of the conversation still, doesn't it? Um, although mm-hmm. it's difficult to do without looking at the screen. The interesting one has been the last two years. I mean, this job has changed exponentially in the last two years. One, because of the extra coverage that we just talked about, and two, because, A lot of us aren't even anywhere near the races at all anymore, Uh, a lot of them. I haven't been to a road race since Omnopet Nusblad, just before the pandemic hit hit Europe. So we're talking nigh on two years. I've done two gyros, two tours, the Olympics, Paralympics, all from my house in Spain. Um, and now I'm in wow. London. I've just had a lovely email, by the way. I'm free to go outside now. The have tested negative. Last year. Uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> I've, I've, I've come to this Champions League thing in London, um, and these last two rounds are the first first commentaries of anything that I've actually done on site for for two years. So it, it's just it's nice to be back in a velodrome and, and back having those looks and giving those sort of elbow uh, elbow things across as well.
1: As we remember Paul, uh, Dan and John and Rob um, we get in the commentary box uh, working for NBC TV we used to have the commentary box uh, at one end, usually the end uh, furthest away from the finish line which wasn't very far and to our right in the old days was Mac Keenan, who we were actually bringing into the business and he was doing the, the fill-in bits before we actually went to air when our voices were then plugged in around the world and uh, I used to go into the commentary box. I I like to work in the commentary box, whereas Paul liked to work in the studio, which was away from the set, doing all his notes on his castles and stuff. And then he'd come in. But one day he was in there, and uh, this music was loud like you would not believe. And so I, I walk in. I'll get take my coat off. I hang it up. I said, "Is there any chance you can turn that music down?" He goes, "What?" I said, is there any chance you can turn that music on? He said, I can't hear you. The music's too loud. <laughs> that was That's how we started the day. And then I hear Matt Keenan just roar with laughter next door. And even when we're on air and we say something, I can hear Matt Keenan laughing right next door at something we've said. Because we, we never knew what we were going to say, as I said. And Paul would just come out with something. And I'd look at him. It was like when we started talking the castles. It was a joke, as far as I was concerned, many years ago. I just remember flying over this chateau with no roof on it. It was an no old ruin, and I just said to Sherwin, and we always call each other Liggett and Sherwin, by the way. We never called each other Paul until I said, uh, I just said, um, Sherwin, I said uh, that uh, that chateau looks a bit in need of repair, doesn't it? Because uh, it had no roof, and he's about 14th century, and he goes, No, it's uh, it is 14th century. He said uh, Louis the 18th lived there. Louis the 14th lived there, rather. I looked at him, how the hell did he know that? And that started it. People started writing in how great it was. And, um, and so then we gradually continued, of course. Then the organization employed a woman to go around the whole race route and record every chateau and monument on the race route and bird uh, wildlife sanctuary and see if they could get them on the cameras. And we talked about them. And it became a very popular aspect. Cause we're talking remember not to necessarily pure cyclists we're talking to okay. in those days probably 150 million viewers a day when we had the whole world service on our hands and <laughs> there's not that many cyclists in the world so if, <laughs> my favorite tale always has been um paul if you can stop the old lady going to make the tea until the commercial break you've done your job and that's why we talk down a little bit to the cyclists and up to the country and and the whole coverage has changed because of it and, Paul was one of it, very much so, because he used to slip me notes and say, who are we talking to? Because we had this system where I was cut out to NBC and he was out to the world. Then the lights would go both red together, then we're together. And uh, then we'd be told in our ears, SBS has just joined or or, um, um, Australian TV, well, not Australian, Canadian TV is now online. So I used to mention where the cyclists were, but we didn't. It sounds simple when you start, but after six Mm. hours, the no clue. So he's pulling messages across. Who are we talking to? In fact, it was a bit stronger than that. It was a, the F word, <laughs> and, and I, I, pushed the note back. I said, "I've no idea." And that's how we got on. We just laughed our way. And when his when his chair broke once, and all I saw was his two size ten shoes high in the air, and his body on the floor, and he's still commentating with his earphones <laughs> and microphone. I just,
4: awesome. I just,
1: I just, I had to look the other way because I was so bursting to laugh. It was ridiculous. He was upside down, still commentating on a monitor he couldn't see. It was hilarious, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: the interesting thing that comes out of what you're saying there, Phil, and and this really uh, uh, leads to where all the commentary is now, when you would uh, um, attest to this, Rob, is in those early days when you and Paul were doing that, I was... I got to tell you, when we, when I first started coming on the tour, I think my first tour was '91, and back in about '97, whenever we'd see an Aussie flag, we'd stop uh, and, and interview them, and then gradually got the stage where you could not do that because there, there were bloody Aussie flags everywhere. But the <laughs> common, the common commentary from the person who was there. The bucket list. The reason they were there is because they started watching your you and. Uh, and Paul and fell in love with the travel log, with that story of France and the yes. Chateaus and all of that yes. to the stage where they became cycling fans and now they're here. So I'm sure, Rob, that would have been part of, you know, led you guys to what you do now. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, anyway, like I, said, definitely I grew up it's...
3: in an area that was cricket, football, you know, cycling wasn't really a thing in Lancashire when, when I was growing up, certainly not, not on the telly or anything like that, aside from the Tour de France, but Living and studying abroad, living in France and Italy, falling in love with the Giros was what did it for me. And and watching, you know, people talking about different places and things. So I think it's it's a hugely important element. And and if if you're a big cycling fan like we all are, um, it's quite easy to lose 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 where that audience is coming from. And you know, you get some people on Twitter saying, "Oh, what are you talking about here? What you know, you should just be talking about the bike racing. We don't want you to talk about anything else." But there's, there's a huge, bit much bigger audience than the, the, the people on Twitter who just want to talk about bike racing,
2: who want to know yeah, about, absolutely. you know, uh,
3: yeah. what's happening no. in Verona, what's happening in uh, in Ruby, you know, where this comes from, why, why this city is called that, and as you said, with your castles, what happens at that castle in 1567, you know, things like that.
4: Yeah,
1: absolutely right, Rob. Uh, when Paul and I were one day climbing up uh, Aldoes in the car, of course, Paul he had palpitations when he saw a kenyan cyclist waving a flag on the side of the mountain and he just reached across me because it was on my left and he's driving on the right we have an english car and he leaps across me and shouts at him in swahili i tell you that kenyan cyclist almost fell off the mountain he was hearing swahili in the middle of france and and paul spoke it fluently and uh, the guy was just beside himself when he heard Swahili being shouted at him. I have no idea what Paul said, but I'm sure it was complimentary. And then Paul straightens up and he just burst out laughing and he drove about out the way, just laughing his head off. He says, the bloody guy, he said, he never understands Swahili up that mountain. And he was just fantastic. Um, but that's the way it was. We just enjoyed ourselves. It
0: was, was the toughest day, I think it was in your documentary, Phil, when you had to commentate, when the pictures just completely went out. And you had a guy and you were just feeding through what was happening in the race or whatever.
1: That was in Blagnac. That was in Blagnac when we had a tremendous rainstorm. It was, oh God, there was about eight inches of water came down in no time at all. Um, and that was quite a while ago. It was in the eighties. And, um, I was working for ITV at the time, oh, probably not be channel four at the time. And then, uh, the race was approaching the finish line. It was the days of Panasonic. And we, we, uh, Alan Piper was on the squad. Robert Miller was in there, it was, uh, and it was going to be a bunch spin. And as they're in the last kilometre and a half, uh, the um, canopy—we only had a scaffolding in those days, not like right now—the canopy got so heavy with water, the whole canopy collapsed right down the commentary box, and soaked the television. Not to mention the commentators, but soaked the televisions and blew them all up. And so we had no pictures at all. And I, got a, I had a landline to London in those days, belt and braces, and um, the phone rang and it was a guy called Brian Venner, who was a wonderful man, still is, on uh, television. And Brian says, we've got perfect pictures. He says, just keep talking, I'll tell you what's happening. <laughs> well, that was great. He so said, Brian didn't understand bloody cycling. And he had no idea of the cyclist. Who, these chaps with blue jerseys on at the front. I thought, ah, oh, that must be Panasonic. Uh, they're leading out uh, Van der Arden or somebody. So I just started commentating like that. And so much so, Paul just stepped back, you see, and stood behind me. And all the uh, NOS and uh, uh, radio, uh, the Belgian TV all came down the thing because they'd all hung up. They were sat there doing nothing. They were off air <laughs> kilometres ago, to totally off air around the world, but the world had pictures. And so... They all came down to look at my monitor. And Paul says, no, no. He says, he hasn't got a monitor like you. There's, there's a guy in London telling you what the pictures are. And they, go, yeah. and, and they bug it off. And uh, and I carried on. And Brian says, and now this is going on. And I said, And so and so. I just guess it was the right riders because I had no clue. And he had no clue. And then in the last 50 metres or so, we could look over the balustrade and I could call them across the line. And, uh, well, the accolades flowed, but we uh, we actually then got Paul off the monitor. He got down into the floodwater because the main, the main sewage had burst, actually, and was down the street, the sewage, and it was inches deep, centimetres deep. And so Paul got out there, tiptoed to Alan Piper and said, that was a rough day, Alan. Mate, he said, we we're up to our axles in shit. <laughs> that went out live on television and and, uh, and that, that's what we did we, we got the story out and we probably entertained the people back home so it was job done yeah
0: well you've definitely done that because there's there was a book on there talking about ligatisms or little, little tidbits <laughs> that you put in your commentary now rob you've obviously been in the game for a long time now is there any particular race or moment that you look back of that you that you're most proud of when when you go, you, you you know what I couldn't have probably called that any better. Is there a
3: particular race or moment that you can recall? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe the match of Vanderpool winning. I'm still, but I wasn't <laughs> actually on Eurosport that day. Um, that's that's all over the internet somewhere. But we turned up for that particular day, not feeling great to be honest. Um, not one of the races I'd best prepared or anything like that um i'm still until that year was always a race because i think we'd had a few years where there weren't great finishes and it always seemed a bit repetitive um and then that race just commentated itself didn't it with them coming through the groups and all that Ah. stuff and just uh, it it was more about the emotion than actually giving out any useful information to people i think it was more about just oh my goodness this has happened and, and we have to try and somehow represent and purvey that, that feeling to everybody about, about how it's happened and what's happened. And I guess that one, but I mean, I think if, if you want to be good, then you're always sort of chipping away at something that you've done. There's always something that you've done wrong that, that's a bit shit that you think you could have done better. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I remember talking I to think Simon it was a good Clark. To have, but... Yeah. I, I remember talking to Simon Clark, who ran second in that Amstel um, a year or so later. And I said, just tell me about that last few kilometers because he was he got caught by the group that that, that uh uh Vandipop was just leading and then just jumped on the wheel. And the, He said, No, I can't, I can't explain it, isn't it? He said, It was just so unbelievable to watch it all unfolding in front of us, it was just going that hard, it just was unexplainable.
3: That's crazy, and obviously, I mean, all of the a lot of these sort of moments seem to have happened quite recently because I think Racing has.
2: Has just gone
3: gone crazy, hasn't it? In the last two or three years, with with how it's oh. changed, the start to finish coverage, how we watch it, and the other one has to be the the time trial at the Tour de France. I'm sitting at home in my uh, in my little sort of home office that I've made in the last eighteen months, uh, on an island just off the coast of Spain, in the island called Mallorca, where I live, and I'm in my little sort of homemade studio, connected to the internet. I've got my sort of Richie Beno style lip mic. I'm sitting there, you know, my neighbours can probably hear me outside of the window and stuff like that, and I've got Brad Wiggins on the line, Sean Kelly, uh, and we're watching this thing unfold, and you know Roglic's helmet sort of slowly slipping behind, and and we're looking at each other on Facetime and, and just going, "This is happening, isn't it? This is really happening," mm-hmm. and and another just another moment of disbelief that you don't really prep for or anything like that, but but just happens and. Yeah I think that's the other the other one that stands out certainly during this new new era of of what we've all been doing from far. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Mine mine is a of phil-ligate, a and it was uh the the uh the tour of Tas- tour of Tasmania I think it was either 99 or 2000 <coughs> in what right year? Uh, and we it's the, the penultimate day, and we're climbing. Oh. We've gone through Hobart, and we're climbing Mount Wellington. I remember there was Neil Stevens, Cadell Evans, and yeah. a guy named Brendan Vesty, a Kiwi. Oh yeah. Um, and and though everyone else has been didn't, because you start climbing straight away in Hobart, right in the centre of Hobart, and it's like 14k at the top of Mount Wellington, a real mountain. So Vesty is a pretty good climber. He's got the pressure on, and then uh, Neil Stevens, Cadell, and then. Neil starts a jersey, but he's struggling a little bit. Cadell bounces past him and then just get whack. And so I'm the race director, so I'm in the front car, and the car next to me, Phil Anderson's driving, and Phil Liggett is in the passenger seat, and they're uh, covering it for uh, our TV. So I remember I put the foot down, and Cadell wasn't going that hard. I had to put the foot down again, and we we accelerated away. And around the corner, we go together, the car side by side. And Fiddler got to it, and said, "Can you believe this?" I said, "Bloody hell!" He said, "This kid wins the Tour de France
1: one day." <laughs> <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <What laughs> did? he well, did then. The end of the story, though, was uh, 10 years later, whenever it was. That was 98 or 99, John, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: 99, no, 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 I no. think. Yeah. 99, yeah.
1: and then Cadell wins his race nearly <laughs> 10 years later. 10 years later.
2: Yeah.
1: I jumped over the barriers because SBS uh, said, Get over and interview him, can you? So I got out of the coverage for the Americans, jumped over the barrier, battled through, got hold of Cadell by the back of his left shoulder, pulled him round, said, Cadell, it's me. He said, You. He said, You told me I could win the Tour de France. I said, Yes, but I didn't expect you to take so bloody long about it. (laughs) it Uh, We've got got a couple of
0: live comments. Uh, Tom Maloney obviously says, Rip Paul, uh, respect. Uh, Ian Thomas says, Paul's music gone and mixed wardrobe available, win win. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tom also says, Phil and Paul cycling royalty, Phil and Trish. Now there's a royal couple. Obviously, Trish was the star from the the, Voice of Sightman documentary. Um, um, Tom Maloney also says, uh, terrific to have diversity into the commentary box, ancient buildings, et cetera. Now the introduction of women as well is also positive for the sport. Um, And Benji Nason also said, he's got a question for you, Rob. Have you ever had voice issues when commentating X amount of days in the world? Is that a non-issue for you?
3: Uh, No, it can be an issue. Um, you can blow your voice if you get far too excited. Um, talking about, it goes back to what we said earlier, actually. I mean, doing the, um, Phil was talking about doing the, the world feed, the international signal that goes out to all these different TVs around the world. Um, I've done that for a few years, especially up for the Flemish races now. Quite a few of them have been broadcast in Australia, actually. Um, but things like the Tour of Flanders, doing them start to finish. Uh, and then there are only being one or two of you, and then something happens in the middle of the race, and you get too excited. Obviously, it's your own fault, but you're trying to sort of relay the excitement, and you blow your voice, and you can't get to the same pitch again. The day after, you're struggling, and thankfully, things like that are classics. But yeah, there have been occasions where where I've struggled, uh, particularly. I think it depends on the person, I guess, doesn't it? And 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 how robust the voice is. Mine must be a bit weak.
0: Well, you'd be on the herbal teas with honey and all that sort of stuff like uh, Celine Dion, wouldn't you?
3: <laughs> I'm not sure I could hit her notes, to be honest, but yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, we, we could talk for hours on end and I've absolutely loved this episode uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, I want to ask you, as, as we're wrapping things up, start with you, Phil. For people listening that have a passion for, they, they want to go down the path of being a commentator, what do you think are the keys to make to making a good commentator?
1: Well, we're talking about Paul today, and for that I thank you guys for remembering Paul on the, on the third anniversary of his passing, but the only the only, first of all, when I got the job with ITV back in 1978 um, the, the presenter was a guy called Dickie Davis, who was a very famous front guy on television here uh, and he rang me up at the commentary box talked to me, I, I couldn't believe Dickie Davis was talking to me in my very first job And it was live. It was a big race in Crystal Palace, which I was also the organiser of. We had 88 British pros, biggest field ever assembled outside of a world championship in the UK. And uh, uh, he used to call everybody old son. And he said, well, old son, he said, when we go on to the break, we'll come back to you. And he said, I'll give you a big build up. He said, just remember why you got the job. I said, well, that's the problem, Dickie. I've no idea why I got the job. (laughs) <laughs> because there was no interview sadly it was after the passing of my friend david Saunders. and uh, he said because they like you he says now when that red light goes on don't change the way you are that's the only advice i ever had in commentating and i passed the same advice to paul sherwin uh, when we went to do our first live commentary together I said paul just remember you're still paul Sherwin when you start commentating And that's the way it's always been. And and we have just stayed ourselves. Because people often say to me in the street, you're just the same as when you're on telly, aren't you? I said, yeah, that's right. Why should I be different? That's the way it's always been. So
0: on that advice, Rob, you need to piss that Polish accent (laughs) off, mate.
4: I was going to
2: say,
1: yeah. I'm not far from you, Rob. I come from the world, don't forget. True, 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 true. Yours
3: isn't quite as broad, luckily for you.
1: Um, Well, no, I never have an accent. No, I
3: mean, on the accent thing... I, my accent would be accepted in the UK. It would probably help me, actually. Um, because, you know, pe- pe- people want different accents. People want to sort of diversify would, the, the media, me which York, is the so. right way to go about it. But, um I, again, I just, just something I decided that I, I feel more comfortable mm. doing that, and I, I want it to be heard around the world. So, I mean... I mean my, my general advice is to work on that voice, work on that voice, work on that mm-hmm. voice. I mean, you have to be prepared and, you know, I mean, we'd look like right shadows if you saw how much prep work we did as well. But, uh, you know, you, you have to know your stuff. But if the voice isn't good, then no one's gonna listen to you. So you have to work on the voice. That is at least 50% of it. And the other one is just have a lot of luck. Have a hell of a lot of luck.
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah, you need
3: good
0: luck. It. Anything you wanna add, Ify, before we wrap things up?
2: Well, I would just like to refine uh, my voice slightly. <laughs> sounds sounds better already. That's impossible uh, for uh, an
1: Australian, you know that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, the, I, I I can't do much about the accent, Phil, That's but really I can I, I can really re- work work on my pronunciation. You, have, it, uh, you haven't
0: sneezed or coughed or wiped your nose throughout no. the whole
1: show, so that is and a JT, massive improvement. JT, if you spoke like that on television, nobody would listen because we love you the way you are.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I I do have to work writers' names correct because um, (laughs) the the, the place names I'm pretty good with because I lived in in Europe and I'm not too bad with those, but I I do uh, the writers, but I'm working on it. I've got Pagacha correct now, like Focaccia, Pagacha. So I'm working (laughs) on them. I'm working on them. All right.
0: Brilliant. Well, uh, it's been an absolute uh, privilege to have you guys on the show. Uh, and, you know, obviously we wanted to pay tribute to the late, great Paul Sherwin, who's been an absolute icon of the sport. And mm-hmm. I think it, it's, it's really done that because, you know, the, the outpouring of, of tributes is, is just going to continue and, and his legacy is going to continue to grow uh, as the years go on for sure. So uh, thanks to Phil and, and thanks to Rob and obviously thanks to you, John, but you're here every week, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> YouTube.com right, forward great, slash great. the Detour podcast. Like, share, subscribe. Uh, tell your mates and uh, we'll be back again next Thursday. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. We'll see you again Cheers, next buddy. week. Cheers, guys. All right, people. Best, all the best. Bye, Cheers. This is the winning ride
1: of the Tour de France.